Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. We're super hyped to introduce you to Christian Hernandez, founding partner of the newly launched VC firm 2150, with a whopping 270 million euros raised in just one year. Christian and his co-founders are behind the biggest VC fundraise for a European first-time fund ever, and we're diving deep on exactly what allowed them to do that. So who is 2150? 2150 is a venture capital firm investing in technology companies that seek to sustainably reimagine and reshape the urban environment. Their investment thesis focuses on major unsolved problems across what they call the urban stack, which comprises every element of the built environment, from the way our cities are designed, constructed and powered, to the way people live, work and are cared for. We hope you'll enjoy this episode as much as we did making it. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors. Do you get cold inbound deal flow that you'd wish you could help but can't invest in? You might consider directing them to the European VC's newly launched self-paced fundraise acceleration program and community. It's tailor-made for founders about to raise their pre-seed or seed round and gives them a clear 10-step process to go from wanting to raise to ready to raise. It's community-centered, giving them access to mentors and fellow founders to spar with around their process, plans, and pains. Stop sending founders on their way with an empty referral to another VC firm or angel group. Send them to a community and resource that will actually help them go from mindless cold outreaches to a deliberate fundraising plan that will actually work. Send them to the europeanvc.com forward slash raise. Christian, before we start, we have to say something and provide some context here because there's something that requires a bit of explaining. Who the hell is Christian Hernandez and the team behind 2150 when you managed to do something which very, very few managers managed to do, which is raise a 270 million fund as a first-time team? And I even know that you've turned some investors away because you're oversubscribed. It is a bit crazy. So quick control myself. I'm a techie by background. I did build databases in the 90s, shipped phones in the early days of the smartphone wars at Microsoft, launched apps in the early days of the mobile wars at Google, and then shipped like buttons at Facebook when MySpace was still bigger. So I've seen small companies get big, and I actually loved the early stage of startup voyages. Left Facebook and became a VC, launched my own generalist venture capital fund called White Star Capital, which is doing great. But a couple of years ago, I had the realization that it was either a midlife crisis or a moral crisis <laughs> that I wanted to um, back do the day job, which is finding and backing people that want to change the world, but that I had this amazing ability to actually find and back people that wanted to change the world. So spend some time thinking about how to do that. What was what I call the vector of attack? Like what's the big bad problem that technology could solve and make the world a better place? Through that, realized that it was the urban environment. Half the world's population lives in it. It consumes the vast majority of resources in the planet. It generates 40% of the world's greenhouse gases, and it's getting bigger. Urbanization is accelerating. 
And that's the one place where there's technologies today that can be deployed today that can have an impact today, while we also work on giant direct air capture machines. So that was my voyage. Without knowing it, a bunch of crazy Danes had been thinking about similar stuff. Mikkel, my partner, had built this real estate private equity fund called NREP. He'd redesigned sections of cities into sustainable neighborhoods. And he was frustrated that even a zip code size sustainable development does not move the needle for the planet. We're still in trouble. So as he stepped back into chairman of NREP, he was trying to think about how he did it at scale. It was probably technology, it was probably venture capital. Who do I know that's done VC and launched a fund from scratch? And that's how we came together, decided to go try and raise a big first time fund, officially hit the ground with LPs last summer. And yeah, you're right, in slightly a week over a year, unfortunately, five days over the date, we ended up closing an oversubscribed 270 million euro fund with some amazing investors from around the world. And now we're ready to go. I mean, we're on a mission, right? We need to find those technologies that can have the impact today. And what, Christian, do you think allowed you to be that successful with your fundraise? Because of course you are incredibly uh, well-versed in both the industry and in tech in general, but many teams are. What made you that much more successful in your fundraise? I think it was three factors, team, platform, and focus. Team, the fact that we had assembled a group and we're continuing to assemble a group of people who've done venture capital before. So Nicole, my partner, has been on something like 100 cap tables. People who've built and scaled technology companies like Jacob and I have done. Uh, Jacob was a former chief product officer at Rocket. People who've managed a lot of money in the past for LPs, as I have and Mikkel has with his private equity fund. And then complementing that with people with an industrial and sustainable background, able to understand the technologies that will have the greatest impact. So that was team. Two, platform, where we benefit from building 2150 on top of NREP. You know, NREP's a 12 billion AUM fund. It's done insanely well. Uh, there's some trust from the LPs that an institutional grade platform like that can absorb and manage a new strategy like 2150. And it takes away a lot of headaches that all of us first time teams go through of Lux Bank and lawyers and yeah. So that helped. And then finally, without really realizing it, the theme, there was surprisingly large amounts of appetite from institutional LPs for a fund focused on sustainability for the built world. They'd done their energy transition funds, they'd done their ag tech funds. There really aren't that many teams out there of scale that can absorb a 20, 30 million check doing sustainability for the built environment. We were obviously on a mission to focus on that, but we didn't realize that the world was waiting for us. And so I think that's what helped lead to A, the type of LPs that we have and B, the speed with which we raised. I want to ask a weird ass question. <laughs> some feedback that we hear and we've had a quick chat about it, which is some people would claim that climate tech isn't really VC. <laughs> and some would put it more, ah, this is more of an impact thing. It's not really VC fun. It's kind of a different game. What's your take on this? What do you say to these naysayers, <laughs> as we call them? Yeah, well, let's start with the fact that I am purely capitalistic, right? I believe that this will deliver outsized returns for a very simple reason. We are unfortunately headed into a war against the climate crisis and the weapons that work and scale to fight in that war will have a premium. And that's not like in 20 years time, that is in this fund cycle, not even in the next 10 years, in the next five years. If we want to have an impact on the curve, if you've looked at it, the curve has to change insanely steeply now to get anywhere close to the Paris core levels. So if you just think about tailwinds, right, you need to think about where the puck is going and what technologies the world will demand. And those are the ones that we're backing today. So by the time they're scaled out and being deployed on a global basis, 
they will carry that premium as other technologies catch up. First, I'm capitalistic, and two, the tailwinds. <laughs> Thirdly, I think when I started thinking about this, and I'll admit it, right, I was actually shy to talk about the word sustainability and what I wanted to do. I quit my own fund with this like midlife crisis, I called it, and I kept dancing around the use of the words. Like I met a fellow VC, and she's like, "Oh, you're raising an impact fund." I'm like, "No, no, no, it's not an impact fund," <laughs> um, because. The word impact had this connotation with philanthropy. You're, you're going to accept subpar returns yep. in return yeah. for some other societal benefit. But A, I and my partners, actually I still have the email, had this email exchange when we said, we keep talking about sustainability and it's like an underlying thing that we talk about when we present the deck. Is that something that we care about? Yes, it's actually core to what we care about. Then let's put it in the name of the fund. So the legal name of the fund has the word sustainability and let's put it on the first slide. And at the same time, kind of the world shifted. There was some transition that happened the last few years and I don't know whether it was Greta or COVID um, <laughs> where the world realized that we needed to start deploying significant amounts of capital into technologies that can try to make the world sustainable. So yeah, so listen, somebody uh, joked that when was I gonna raise a real VC fund? I'll laugh my way all the way to the bank when the returns come in in a decade's time. <laughs> I love that. I would be really interested to hear your experience, what you just described, but on the fundraising side, so dealing with LPs, was that a kind of reaction and feedback you had, or was it more from other industry players that you had this perspective? First of all, there's plenty of money out there. And a friend of mine at a very, very large bank said this to me, he's like, there's more money than God trying to back sustainable technology managers. There's just not enough professional grade managers to absorb it, yeah. which ended up being true. To put it in context, we have, some of our LPs include Credit Suisse, who raised a 320 million climate tech fund of funds in like a very short amount of time. It includes a client of Goldman Sachs Asset Management, who's now one of our largest LPs. It includes sovereign funds from Denmark and Norway. So they both have pretty big vehicles for climate tech. So the Danish vehicle, the Green Future Fund is a 3 billion fund of funds and the Norwegian vehicle called Nisno is pretty big as well. And then we have pension funds, the BMW Foundation, Nordic banks, and then critical to our mission, we have family offices, companies that build, manage, or develop real estate, right? These are the customers for the companies that we back and they invested in us because they want access to sustainable technologies that they can then deploy. And on the flip side, the pitch to the companies that we back is, look, we have customers for you let us invest and we can accelerate your commercial traction. So as a final close, we have 40 million square meters of real estate under management or development by our LPs, which is pretty wow. significant. So the LP side was understood why we need this needed to get fixed. There's regulatory demand for it, where governments are pushing for sustainable technologies in the built environment. There's consumer demand for it. You want to feel that the place where you spend the majority of your life, your office or your home is sustainable. And there's big money demand for it. So Nordic pensions have been pushing for a sustainable agenda for a long time. So yeah. managers, real estate companies, developers are, are reacting to it. Yeah. On the VC side, there was a, a climate tech event yesterday and it was actually pretty cool seeing a lot of old friends from like general tech on stage yeah. <laughs> and there. So Daniel Waterhouse from Balderton, who's actually pretty thematically focused on climate tech. A couple of VCs that were in generalist funds that now have a specialist fund, generalist funds that are beginning to pivot towards climate tech. So it's not a theme, I think it's a thing. <laughs> Christian, I'm a bit curious here because we're seeing all these funds attacking now climate tech as a space for them. 
but there is, of course, a great opportunity there, but it's also quite different technologies than what the typical generalist fund would do before, meaning it's not just B2B software and it's not just SaaS business models. What's your thinking around that, both in terms of your own background and your teams, but also in terms of all the co-investors and your colleagues in the business moving to climate? So maybe let me start with where my voyage started. I'd gone to an exec ed course at Princeton, actually the first exec course that Princeton's ever done at the Anlinger Center for Energy and the Environment, and it was paid for by the World Economic Forum and it was free. So I'm like, it's free, I can go learn about what bad shape the planet is in. And I walked out of that freaked out, right? Because I realized that there's this graph that shows how you need a stack of technologies to get the world anywhere close to two degrees. There's no one silver bullet. You driving your Tesla makes you feel good, but it has pretty much zero impact. Yeah. So AI realized that we needed to deploy as many technologies as possible concurrently. Secondly, they brought in a panel of entrepreneurs. One had been, I think, engineer number two at Tesla. One had been the CTO of Sunrun. Both of them actually were working on battery technologies and they'd raised their seed round and they were struggling to raise their Series A. What year is this? Uh, this is, I think, 2018. Actually, I can tell you because I have my little badge right here. Yeah, 2018. Yeah. The reason why they couldn't raise it is because they were two dirty words. Mm -hmm. yeah. They were deep tech and they were climate tech, yeah. which scares away a vast majority of the VC ecosystem. So if you're gonna solve the planet's sustainability, you need to back hard stuff, and that includes hardware. Mm -hmm. And as you know, VCs don't like hardware. And so the challenge there is thinking about financing models that allow those companies to scale without too much dilution, right? So if they need to build $500,000 stuff times 1,000, should that get financed by the equity that I just gave them? In the early days, maybe some, but alongside climate tech, BC, you need to have project and asset financing that allows those companies to scale. And that's the big gap. So Bill Gates just announced something called uh, Breakthrough Catalyst, which is effectively that pot of money that's gonna fund early stage prototypes of the hard stuff. It's a, I think it's a billion for Europe with the European Development Bank and 1.5 billion for the US. And then after you pass that prototype phase, there's a bunch of people, JP Morgan, Generate Capital, that'll give you that asset financing. But that's very different from yeah, a SaaS business or a commerce business. So when we think about an investment, we need to think about will these guys be able to get access to that non-dilutive financing to allow them to scale? And we make some calls and we can try and validate it during our due diligence. Secondly, in the due diligence, we spend a lot of time doing sustainability math. What's the potential impact of this business at scale? What needs to happen for that to get there? And we said no to some transactions where it might have been a fantastic SaaS business, but the impact is going to be nice, but not the level that we require. I made this term up last year as a joke and now it's taken off, but we're hunting for gigacorns. Mm -hmm. And gigacorns I defined as commercially viable companies that can mitigate a gigaton of CO2. And a gigaton of CO2 is a shitload. Mm -hmm. It's all of non-commercial car pollution in Europe, to put it at scale. And so we need to know it might not be a gigacorn, but can it get close to it? Is it in the megaton range? Is it in the hundreds of megatons ranges? So that's an important part of due diligence, which I never would have done before. And then finally, I said that some of these companies are still in deep tech land, right? Series A in deep tech does not look like CAC LTV ratios or MRR. There's still some technical risk. So how much technical risk are we willing to accept? And how do we reach out to our community of scientists and PhDs that can help validate that that science could go from prototype to commercialization? So you know what? It's, it is more challenging than CAC LTV and MRR businesses, but it's also more fun because you get to go pretty deep into some 
amazing science. This begs the question exactly what stage do you invest at? What kind of businesses are you looking at? What kind of technologies? Because yes, it's the built environment, but a lot of technologies <laughs> deployed within the built environment. Yeah. So where are your parameters and how do you think about it? Yeah, so let's first define the thesis. So we talk about the urban stack. And for us, the urban stack is these interconnected layers that make cities efficient, sustainable, resilient. If one level crumbles, the whole city crumbles. So it starts with enabling the city. That's the materials that get used, the pipes that flow in and out, the energy that gets consumed. It's the building of the city, how we build more efficiently. Construction is an amazingly inefficient and wasteful business. It's sensors that we use inside the built environment, inside our roads. It's how we heat and cool our buildings, how we create comfort for the humans, how we get stuff in and out, so supply chain, logistics, mobility, and finally, how we keep people healthy, safe, and secure in the urban environment. So yes, it's a vertical, but I would argue it's the world's largest vertical. <laughs> and so within that, we've looked at materials companies, we've done an investment in CO2-treated concrete, we have done a battery electrification company for the construction sites, and then we've done some software deployed for infrastructure and carbon accounting. So it's a pretty broad type of company that we look at. We've check size ranges from 1 million to 10 million, initial check. Sweet spot for us is gonna be a five to six million lead co-lead check, so what used to be called Series A in the good old days. And in climate tech, that's where the gap exists. There's sufficient capital at seed, many of the friends that you guys have spoken to. There's insane amounts of capital at late stage. So every single private equity fund now has an ESG fund. There's a gap at like A and B, where you know, at C plus to B minus, I keep running into effectively the same names over and over again, both in Europe and in the US. Yeah. And we need a lot more of us at that stage to help some of these companies break through. Could you characterize a bit the path that these companies are on from you know, inception at the university or wherever they originate from, and then to you? And when are you interested in starting to work with the founders? And do you collaborate with universities, for example? We do collaborate with universities. We're actually an affiliate of Princeton's Adlinger Center that I talked about before. Yeah. Yeah. We have a relationship with some European universities as well. But us backing two brilliant PhDs and a PowerPoint is too early, right? Because back to the promise that we make to them, we have customers waiting for you who want to try your technology. They're not ready for that. The earliest entry point for us would be where a company has probably a prototype, something you can touch and feel that could get deployed within a certain amount of time into the real world. At the same time, we've also backed some later stage companies that are you know, full product market fit scaling. And these we usually do to help bring into Europe. So Carbon Cure is a great example. Carbon Cure was our first investment. That one injects CO2 into concrete. Concrete's really bad. It's 8% of world CO2 emissions. This is the most scaled out carbon capture and use technology in the world. It's now live in 400 concrete factories around the world. We invested alongside Amazon and Breakthrough Energy with the promise that we were gonna be their go-to-market partner in Europe, which we're now delivering on, right? We're helping do introductions to, and customers who tell their GCs, who tell their concrete manufacturers, I want that. Oh, and by the way, they won the X prize. So there's a lot of sexy factor around carbon cure, which we help amplify. And that was a later stage round, but A, we were allowed to invest given the amount of appetite and interest from others. I joined the board as an observer and we helped bring them into Europe. The first pouring of that technology in Europe was actually in Denmark in one of NREP's projects. And now it's gonna be deployed in a couple of other countries. We'll do prototype phase all the way to it's deployed in North America. We think there's a huge opportunity in Europe. It's really interesting you're talking about your value add. 
and that your promise to Carbon Cure was that you'd be the go-to-market partner in Europe. How would you describe the value add of 2150 to the startups investing? We've purposely invested into, uh, we're calling it a platform team, and everybody has a platform team, but effectively like this team whose job it is to be the facilitator. So Nicole LeBlanc, who joined us from Google Sidewalk Labs, leads that, and she spends a lot of her time with these LPs that we have who own, manage, or develop 40 million square meters. And she does like this half-day workshop with them and says, what's your biggest problem? What do you need to solve to achieve your sustainability agenda? Is it energy efficiency of your buildings? Is it the materials that you're using? Is it carbon accounting and measurement to your footprint? And so we now have the catalog across a number of them. And that influences also the thesis development that we do because we try to go deep into kind of the big problem sets, right? So we did like a 40-page report on concrete before we actually came across Carbon Cure. And so that influences the deep dives, which then allows us to go find the companies working on those problems. And then when we back them, and to be fair, actually, even when we don't back a company, we now have a broad portfolio of technologies that these building owners can deploy. And so our job is to actually be that facilitator. Okay, you want heating and cooling, or you want energy efficiency, here are five companies that we looked at. This one's really early, but could actually be super impactful. This one's deployed across all of JLL's businesses. This one is price competitive with something you could get from Schneider Electric. Which one do you want an introduction to? The reason we needed to have a broad swath of the real estate ecosystem was to help us understand the problems and then help us validate the technologies. Would you even deploy that? And then hopefully drive commercial traction for them when they're ready. You've hinted to this in the past, but I want to revisit it. I guess this is very much connected to your approach in uh, building LP base for the fund and that there was a lot of strategic thinking around who do you want as LPs? Can you put some words to that? To be fair, like we were lucky enough to get some names that I never would have talked to as a generalist VC, right? Yes, we were strategic slash lucky, to be honest. Our first close was anchored by four LPs, the Agustinus Foundation, which is a Danish foundation, the Danish Green Future Fund that I mentioned before, yeah. and Novo Holdings, who is a broad investor in venture capital. They're some of the best names in the Valley. And they evaluated us as a pure VC, but they actually didn't evaluate us as an impact fund. They evaluated us as a traditional VC. And then NREP, who incubated us, and it, it was one of the anchors. But the fact that those investors were more than half of our first close gave us the momentum to then get to 160 million for first close, be able to unveil, and literally the phone started ringing. Credit Suisse reached out to us the day after we unveiled and said, hey, we have this climate tech fund of funds, which we didn't know about. We'd like to learn more about your fund. And they ended up becoming a significant LP in the fund. We had this institutional grade LPs, and then we were trying to balance that with these real estate funds, which you know, ended up being a London developer, a family office that's the largest construction group in Finland, the largest owner of real estate in a Nordic country, one of the largest builders in Germany. They're actually building the Tesla Gigafactory. And these people, when they heard the story, they knew the problems, right? They're like, our industry sucks. Our industry is like laggard, non-digitized, inefficient, and bad for the world. But I don't have time to go look for these technologies. These guys are gonna do it full time. Me putting a X million into the fund means I effectively get an innovation team for free. And hopefully I get the returns that they're promising me. The challenge that we got to is that our initial target was 200. We had all this appetite. We didn't want to go beyond our hard cap. I mean, to be fair, 270 million for a first time team is still a lot of money to go prove our worth. So we had to say no to several tens of millions of euros. And I never had that problem in my life. I think we ended up constructing a pretty good base between institutional pensions, endowments, family offices, real estate groups, and kind of friends and families from the startup ecosystem across Europe who are mission aligned. But the secret, as you guys know, 
is those anchors, like the first close momentum. It's just like us with a company. There's FOMO. Oh, wow, those guys backed it. I better go look at it. <laughs> and then they do their due diligence. They're like, all right, these guys are legit. And the, by the way, they really do mean their sustainability stuff. They're not greenwashing. I mean, there's actually an EU directive that if you use the word sustainability in your fundraising material, you have to report against it and kind of prove that you really mean it. Just asking a question that you can say, ah, maybe we shouldn't talk about that, Andreas. <laughs> the EIF, they aren't part of your LP base, am I correct? They are not. I've known the EIF for a long, long, long time. Actually, they were never LPs in any of my funds for many reasons. Honestly, my intention had been to reach out to them after the first close, and then things just went way too fast. And so we had a conversation, right? But the beauty and the challenge for the EIF is that they're the largest LP in Europe. The challenge for them is that they already know what they're going to deploy in 12 months' time, because yeah. everybody comes and talks to them. And so we had an open conversation about the fact that the timing was not going to work for Fund One. But you know, I mean, I think venture in Europe would not exist without the EIF. Mm. They pretty much saved the industry after the dot-com crash, after the 08 crash. Same thing with KFW in Germany and, and British Business Bank in the UK. We don't have the endowments that the US has, so we end up relying significantly on government-funded money for the asset class. I'm a bit curious because you have the LP base of real estate fund managers or real estate family offices. You also have very close collaboration partners in these more debt-directed funds. I guess none of them are LPs. But I would suspect that your collaboration is very, very close because every single investment from your side will necessarily need to get funding from this type of organization as well. Yeah, not all of them. It's a couple that require it. Yeah. You do have to have build those relationships. Actually, if there's one gap in the European landscape, it's that. Mm -hmm. It's effectively an income product, right? It's a yield product that goes and buys an asset and then leases it back to the company and generates a yield. Generate is kind of the famous one in the U.S. The founder of Generate is now at the Department of Energy in the U.S., giving out billions of dollars for clean tech. They're looking at, at Europe. J.P. Morgan has a green finance group. Credit Suisse has a green finance group. They do a lot of work on green bonds, but they also look at this product. HSBC has made some comments. They're going to launch this. So I think people are realizing that this is a interesting high-yield product that, by the way, a lot of their LPs might be interested in. Yeah. Coming back to your thesis and you focusing on problems, you have this 40-page report on one of the problems as an example. Yeah. I'm curious to understand better how do you develop your thinking around these specific problems and how does it affect your operations following? And now you've done a deep dive. How do you go out and hunt or what drives that? Yeah, so we are doing these deep dives, right? So even before we closed, Jacob and I had an intellectual curiosity around cement and concrete. We knew it was bad, but we didn't know why. So during the summer, year and a bit ago, we just started researching. Short version turns out that the problem is limestone which gets used to make cement which generates a lot of co2 when it becomes lime and then the heat required to bake the cement and then moving the heavy stuff to concrete sites and then to construction sites so if you add all that up it's eight percent of co2 so then okay we now need the problem then we looked at technologies that could address the problem be that capturing flumes in cement factories like semex has done but that cost them 12 million dollars funded by the u.s government that's non-scalable whether it's changing the chemistry of cement so that you're not generating so much CO2 from the limestone. There's a bunch of startups doing that, but it's not scaled out and it's not price competitive with Portland cement, which we're literally using like water. It's the most consumed product in the world. We're pouring it literally like water around the world. And then finally, we through that came across Carbon Cure and we were just talking to companies and reached out to them. And luckily they were raising and luckily they liked us and luckily we were able to invest. So it's problem identification, technology solutions, companies and teams and scientists. We actually looked at some research being done at MIT and at other universities to understand what was coming and then target finding. And then hopefully, I mean, 
with Rob at Carbon Cure, as he put it nicely to me one time, you guys showed up educated, right? We knew what the problem was and we knew why his solution worked. And therefore he didn't have to spend the first half an hour telling us how bad concrete and cement is. So we're doing a number of those. Let me just run through a couple of them. So big problems that we're trying to solve. 39% of energy use comes from building and construction. So I'm personally doing a deep dive right now on cooling. It's not that we're gonna need air conditioning to give people comfort. We're gonna need air conditioning to keep people alive. And if you look at just India, which currently has 40 million AC units deployed, the IEA forecast that, that will be 1.1 billion by 2050. A, the grid in India cannot support 1.1 billion AC units based on energy efficiency. B, those AC units use really nasty refrigerants, like 3,000 times more negative than CO2, which if they leak are really, really bad. And three, the AC units run when it's hot during the day, when there's peak demand, which means that the energy that's flowing into it is probably gonna come from coal. <laughs> there's another billion that's gonna be deployed in China. We get to like five something billion AC units by 2050. So A, I'm freaked out by that problem because I the more I research it. And now I'm beginning to look at the technologies. What could actually solve it? There's different refrigerants they could use. There's energy efficiency. There's new types of ways in which you could actually use what's called passive cooling. So I'm in that technology evaluation phase. And from there, I'm gonna start doing the outreach phase, talking to companies that are working in the space. And cooling is actually, surprisingly, a massively underfunded sector. 2019, a total of $350 million got invested in cooling technologies across 35 deals. If this is a big problem, as in billions and billions of nasty units in the world by 2050 that will be required, I'd argue we should probably be investing a bit more than 350 million into it. So we're doing that around heating and cooling. We're doing one around air pollution. You know, one in eight deaths in the world can be attributed to air pollution. Cities have really bad air pollution. 35% of what's called PM10 air pollution actually comes from construction sites. Dust and the cement and all the stuff that gets used, but it's actually also this little known fact that construction sites run on diesel. There's a diesel generator that is running all day on this really nasty stuff called red diesel that powers the cranes, the machines, in the UK, red diesel is being banned from next year. That's gonna be a 400 million pound incremental cost to the construction industry. In Norway, the city governments have forced construction to go electric. Based on that problem set, we ended up identifying a company that electrifies a construction site called Amped Energy in Hong Kong. They replaced that nasty diesel generator with battery technology, off-the-shelf battery with some smart software that loads from the grid and powers the electric site. They're deployed across dozens of construction sites in Hong Kong and now in Singapore and coming to Europe where the demand exists, right? We started with kind of the air pollution problem and that led us down this path that we ended up doing a battery technology company out of Hong Kong. I can't help but think that part of being a thesis-driven fund and being also a pioneer in selecting verticals and technologies, that often also comes with having an issue of finding co-investors, both in the first round, but sometimes you can lead those yourself, but at least in the follow-on rounds, you're still ahead of the curve. How have you tackled this? How do you make sure that that doesn't become a problem? It hasn't been a problem, actually, so far. I mean, we're five deals in, someone announced. Some have been competitive against generalist funds that we're looking at it as well. I mean, there's one specifically that they had a number of other term sheets from names that you'll know. They claimed they chose us because of the mission alignment. They felt that our ethos around the impact that we wanted our companies to have, along with the term sheet being on par with the other one, was who they wanted at the cap table. So we've partnered with generalist funds, clean tech funds, climate tech funds, and kind of vertical specialists across the portfolio. We've now done two investments with Breakthrough Energy. We've done an investment, actually, that will have been announced by the time the podcast comes out, into a company called Normative in Sweden. That's one of the world leaders on carbon accounting. 
And we did that one with ETF, the French London Climate Tech Fund. We did Nodes and Links, which is an infrastructure AI for infrastructure projects. And for that one, we built a syndicate and we brought in Zig, which is a prop tech specialist in the US, early investor in Procore. And they're going to help the company go into uh, the US. And then we did the um, Amped Energy, the battery company, with a fund similar to us in Australia called Taronga. They're focused on the construction and built environment with a sustainability lens. They've been looking at the company as well, and we were both co-investors in Carbon Cure, and we decided to do the deal together. We are the European partner. Taronga is the kind of Australian equivalent. But we also get a lot of calls from our friends at like the big boys, right, the generalist funds, because they know we have this vertical expertise and they're looking at a company and they say, what do you think about this one, right? So there's this benefit of us having this filter and lens into one problem set area where generalist fund is looking at SaaS and consumer and flying taxis and all sorts of stuff. So I think there's that benefit as well. The challenge is that some of the big funds in the US and in Europe need to take 20% when they invest. And that makes it really hard to syndicate. And so I have some really good friends at some of those funds with whom I'd love to be on the cap table and sitting at the board together, but it's going to be really hard for both of us to get the ownership that we want to get. Speaking of that, <laughs> what are your views on ownership targets and so on? If you read the academic research, right, <laughs> maximize ownership with the first check and then defend it for as long as possible, which is why Benchmark or Bessemer wants to have 20%. Actually, I've seen some of them where they have 30%. And then they have the capacity to defend it through, like, through exit. In our thinking, yes, we want to have double-digit ownership, but we also want to have other partners at the table who will add other skills. Maybe it's uh, somebody who really understands B2B SaaS. Maybe it's somebody who can open a market. So we, our range has been you know, double digits up to 15%. In some of the later stage deals that we'll do, we will accept single-digit ownership, but there's like a later stage round where we're helping to bring them to Europe, like I talked about before. But that's a kind of portfolio construction, right? Where we're coming into a later deal, probably a sooner path to liquidity on that one. Lower ownership might make sense. But yeah, but if you go purely by the academic research, maximize, go for 20 plus ownership, screw the rest, don't syndicate. <laughs> and, and how about governance and board seats and control rights and so on? What's your thinking there? Yes, the board is where you have the legal governance rights, but the real influence you have with the business is not at the board. Like the board, your information sharing, governance, etc. This business is one of carrots and sticks. You have really strong carrots, hopefully, because you've developed a relationship with the founder and you can nudge them and influence them, but you're not the CEO, you're a minority shareholder, so hopefully you can influence in the right direction or they trust your advice. That's the carrot. And you have one really nasty stick, which is getting rid of the CEO. And if you use that stick, you're probably not in a good place. So being on the board matters, but I think the conversations and the trust that you build with the founders outside of the board is what matters more. In all the investments that we've made to date, we are either a board observer or a board member. In some, we honestly didn't have the right to ask for a board observer seat, but we got invited to be a board observer, which is a good sign, right? It means that they think that our voice and our input is valuable at the table. And others, when we led or co-led the round, it's expected that we would take the board seat. Now I want to shift the topic a bit to something that David and I have been talking about for some time, which is the VC Twilight Zone. And, you know, seven years back, I would say climate tech was definitely in the VC Twilight Zone, meaning that we had 350 million deployed on a global level into climate VC. And now I think we're up to uh, somewhere around 16, 16, 17 billion annually. So we've seen amazing development evolution in this sector and i'm curious you've been looking at it <laughs> either as an important player or just as someone really observing it and knowing that you want to go into this vertical i'm curious what have you seen happen throughout this period and what have you
have you seen drive the change? Yeah, actually, if you look at that curve, by the way, the pitch book data, the steepness massively changed in the last two yeah, years, right? Exactly. So it's, it's yeah, yeah. people get, got burnt by green tech one. There's plenty of other podcasts who talk about why, right? VC was funding non-VC type products like solar farms and, and yet Tesla and Sunrun and a bunch of these other companies came out of that boom. So you know, there were venture style returns and more that came out of that but just people ran away. Somebody joked the other day that had uh, Kleiner backed Tesla instead of Fisker, they would have stayed in the game. Yeah. <laughs> so what's changed? I think A, it's the type of technologies where there's a couple different things, AI and computation that can make energy more efficient. There's synthetic biology that can replace petrochemicals with bacteria, with biology, lower cost hardware that can actually scale. And so all these kind of different trends in technology that all can have a climate impact all happening kind of at the same time. Two is, I think, a sense of realization that, yes, we are beginning to tackle this curve around COVID, but there's this much bigger curve right behind it that we'd probably need to start thinking about. I heard a great quote yesterday at the climate tech event. There's Greta and Gates. There's people that would think we can tackle the curve through behavioral change. Us as individual agents changing the way we consume and we travel and et cetera. And there's people that believe they can get changed through science, the Gates camp. And the Gates camp, which I fall into, are realizing there's science that can be black today, that can be deployed today, that can have an impact today. The problem sets are vast from food and biodiversity and electrification and concrete and cement and steel. And then at the same time, founders, where repeat founders you know, they sold their fashion e-commerce business and did well, and maybe they had their own midlife crisis, and they realized that I can apply what I know, which is how to bring together a team, build a company, and I can have an impact. So in the case of Normative, the carbon accounting company that I mentioned, Christian, the founder, is literally a mad scientist, right? He's been in the lab thinking about carbon accounting all his life, and he loves that. But his chairman is Casper, the founder of Pecan, who had a fantastic exit. Yeah. And Casper's belief is, I want to have an impact. I don't know if I have the right idea right now, but I can apply what I know, which is how to build a successful business and coach and mentor founders through this chairmanship role. So you have plenty of Caspers now focused on that. Like I mentioned before, those companies that I met in Princeton, where there was engineer number two at Tesla and the CTO Sunrun going off on their own. And then finally, the LP appetite for this, where it's seen as both lucrative investments, but also potentially impactful investments. And in the case of Credit Suisse, right, they raised that money from their high net worth clients. Their high net worth clients wanted to have access to this ecosystem of technologies. And so the right vehicle for them to do it was not direct investments, was a fund of funds. So all those combinations kind of coming together at the same time. I mean, if you look at all the big private equity shops, it's the names that are behind there, right? Hank Paulson coming out of retirement for the TPG Rise Fund, Lord Brown and the Net Zero Fund, so the gravitas of these folks who, as Hank Paulson put it, I don't need a job. I'm, I'm, I'm doing this because I want to have impact and therefore money following and flowing into them. Somebody asked whether we were in a green bubble. You know what? We might be, but I don't care. I care about the <laughs> fact that these technologies are being backed. I told a founder the other day that we ended up not backing. I'm like, yes, I'm kind of sad I'm not on your cap table, but in a way I'm happy that you exist. I'm happy that your technology is being deployed and I'm happy that it has the benefit that it will have. And the same sentiment got relayed to me by another investor that looked at one of my companies and it was too late for them. He's like, I'm sorry, we're gonna have to pass, but I'm just happy this company exists and I'm happy you're backing it. It was weirdly kumbaya collaborative <laughs> in the climate tech world. Maybe on that note, I think that we owe to say that we of course got the intro to you from Lara Cool, Carbon Equity. And what she also said, because we asked, 
why do big funds like 21VC bother having you guys on as an LP with your small SPVs built out of a bunch of retail investors? And her answer to that was, well, it just resonates very well with the profile of the GPs because the GPs want to bring people onto this wave of change. So I definitely recognize that Kumbaya live in the climate tech industry at the same time as we're, of course, all of us very capitalistic uh, being in the VC game. The European VC ecosystem was a lot more transparent than the US. The US, like the value was like super sharp elbows. Oh, I just saw this guy having milkshakes with the founder at the, the diner. Let's call him, let's, let's issue the term sheet now. <laughs> Obviously, it's gotten more competitive over the last 10 years. But I think climate tech feels a bit like European venture felt 10, 12 years ago, where there's not that many people you're going to co-invest with from the European ecosystem. So let's find the right ones. Let's call each other, share our due diligence. I mean, I never in my general VC life shared my DD report with another fund. And I'm now on my third letter of non-reliance, where you effectively say, if I invest in this company and it's based on your information, it's my fault, not yours. <laughs> so the fact that I'm willing to share my 40-page concrete and cement report with another investor, just because it makes them smarter and makes them realize the opportunity with the company that we're both looking at, it makes sense. We are running out of time, Christian, and we always like to finish our episodes with a quick fire round. That is a couple of quick answer questions, 30 to 60 seconds each. Are you ready? Let's go. <laughs> so in climate tech, which areas, but maybe let's focus more on technologies, excite you the most that other people wouldn't really feel that excited about? Dirty industries, places that people just don't think about as being able to be shifted by technology, they are being influenced. That's a construction site, that's a concrete factory, that could be a steel plant, that could be HVAC maintenance. Second question, many of our listeners are aspiring and emerging VCs. And so what would you say are your three top tips to them who might be preparing to start fundraising and preparing to launch their fund? Every single deck kind of looks the same. We're the best team. We've had the best angel track record. We will find the best companies. So what actually really differentiates you? One, to the anchor, focus all your attention on getting the anchors because that will drive the momentum. The anchor is the one that's going to spend money with a lawyer to actually get you to the first documents and then build the first close around that anchor. And in many cases, the anchor in Europe will be a government entity. So give yourself 12 to 18 months. And then finally, it's a long slog and you'll give your pitch 10,000 times. If you're on it for the right reason, raise the minimum viable product of what you need to actually deploy fund one. Fund two is a lot easier. Third and final question. What can we expect in the future from Christian Hernandez and 2150? Hopefully, we will be able to say that we made our LPs top decile returns. And more importantly, that we hunted a bunch of gigacorns and that we had the impact that we wanted to have to make our world efficient, sustainable, and resilient. I mean, that's why I'm doing this. This is why That's why my kids wear the 2150 hats and t-shirts. <laughs> I'm only on this planet for a short amount of time. Let's do something about it. I have to, before we end this, ask you all the time during this call, I've been looking at uh, Chikovara behind you. Uh, I have to hear <laughs> what's the story there. <laughs> That's from a web summit uh, back when it was in Ireland, like many, many years ago. So the guy who did that poster is actually an Irish artist, huh? the original poster. Okay. Patty from web summit gave to us, to the speakers as a gift. I think they only made 150 of them. Because if you look close, you can't see it from there. The Che Guevara picture is actually has hundreds of tiny images of Steve Jobs. So the whole point is revolutionaries come in different guises. Uh, super <laughs> cool. And yes, they do. And thank you for being one of them, Christian. Thank you for joining us today. It's been super cool. All right, guys. Thanks so much. 
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors. 